Hey, everybody, and welcome in to the Ritz Report. It is Tuesday, September 12, 2023, and welcome to the world-famous Ritz Report, the only podcast you need to know what's happening, when it's happening, and best of all, what to think about everything that's happening. <laughs> How's that for a deal? And all for the low price of $0, or in Spanish lingo, Cero Dolores, I think. I think. I think that's how you say it in a little Espanol. How's everybody doing? Don't forget to subscribe and give me five stars if you like what you hear uh, here on the world-famous Rich Report. (laughs) (laughs) Also, send me notes of adoration and love or pure hatred to Ritz at RitzReport.com. And, as always, hit me on the socials where I am out there spreading love and good cheer. You are a sad, strange little man. <laughs> uh, how's everybody? Everybody watched the U.S. Open over the weekend? I don't watch a whole lot of sports, but I do watch some of the big tennis matches. And the U.S. Open, as you know, or maybe you don't know, is one of the Grand Slam events. For those of you who aren't tennis aficionados like myself, oh, hello there, I'm a tennis aficionado. Uh, the... Um, ATP, which is the American Tennis Professional Association or whatever it is, uh, the they have four, what are they called, Grand Slams. So generally to win a tennis match on the men's side, you have to win best of three. In a Grand Slam, uh, best of three in terms of sets. In a Grand Slam, you have to win best of five, which makes, it, it can make the time, <laughs> it can make the time of the match excessive. I think the longest match ever was like 11 hours and they had to play it over two or three days. Uh, And I actually think they changed the rules after that match because how can you have an 11-hour match? I've seen three-hour matches, four-hour matches, five-hour matches, but 11 hours? 11 hours is insane. Anyway, Djokovic, the Joker, the man from Serbia, who most people say is the GOAT, the greatest of all time when it comes to professional men's tennis, pulled it out for his 24th Grand Slam. The slams are the U.S. Open, the Australian Open, the French Open, and Wimbledon. Those are the four big events of the year. So he pulled it out, 24th, and I was thinking to myself, self, he wasn't there for the last two years because my man, the Joker, refused to get a a COVID vaccine. (laughs) A COVID shot that doesn't actually do anything... (laughs) (laughs) that they actually had to go and change. And this is true. You can go check this out for yourself. The CDC had to go and change the actual definition of vaccine on its website because (laughs) these outstanding products that were delivered by Moderna and Pfizer didn't actually fit the definition of a vaccine, so they changed the definition. You are one (laughs) pathetic loser. Uh, Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? So that's what they had to do. So the Joker comes in, finishes, wins, 36 years old. The guy's got to be getting close to the end of his career, I would think. He took out Daniel Medvedev from Russia. Daniel won the actual U.S. Open two years ago. I don't know if it's Daniel or Danielle. I don't know how he says it in Russia, but whatever. I'm going with Daniel. That's the American way to do it. Uh, So he actually won the U.S. Open two years ago when Djokovic was not there. So he has to be thinking to himself, self, would I have won two years ago had this guy been in the... Uh, been in the U.S. Open. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. But he pulled it out. It was a hell of a, hell of a match. Fun to watch. 
Uh, so anybody who is out there who doesn't watch tennis, maybe you should give it a try. Give it a try. Go to atptour.com or whatever the website is, and you can see what are the next um, the next tournaments that are coming up. Tennis is actually a really, really grueling sport for the people who play it professionally. Just the amount of time per year. They get like almost no time off. Uh, and the whole thing's based on a point system. So depending upon how many points they need or how many points they want to try to achieve, they choose what tournaments they're going to play in. But I mean, it's pretty much goes all year round. I think there's like three or four weeks potentially that they get off and they essentially follow the sun around the globe. Uh, and they finish up, it starts in hardcore season in Australia and then it goes to clay season over in Europe. And then it comes back to the U S back to hardcore. Um, and Wimbledon has grass, uh, but most of it's hardcore or clay. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, the schedule is grueling. And I've always, uh, I started paying attention to tennis a lot back in the 90s, probably more information than you ever wanted to know <laughs> about tennis and my tennis interests. But I started paying attention back in the 90s when uh, Andre Agassi was, was a, uh, a big name. And he actually has a, a book, uh, I think it's called, what's it called? I forget what it's called. But he has a, like an autobiography. Uh, about him that's actually super interesting so if you're interested in tennis at all or you have any interest in Andre Agassi I would recommend giving that a listen or buying it and giving it a read yes indeed so what else are we talking about oh one of the classic things actually that the in, in the U.S. Open the guy Djokovic who refuses to get a vaccine actually has uh, the sh they call it the shot of the day which is one of the shots taken during a match uh, and it's sponsored by who else? Moderna. <laughs> uh, sponsored by Moderna. So they had the shot of the day that showed Djokovic, the only guy who wouldn't get the dumb shot, uh, winning the shot of the day. Uh, speaking of drugs, apparently, and related to COVID, apparently Paxlovid, which is the drug that was put out by Pfizer for people who got COVID, but you didn't really want to get COVID. And it was supposed to help you not really get COVID if you got COVID. But then if you got COVID and took Paxlovid, you were having rebounds of COVID two and three and four weeks later because the Paxlovid didn't actually do what they said it was going to do, kind of like the shot. So the Paxlovid didn't do what they said it was going to do. But now apparently Paxlovid prescriptions have quadrupled in the last couple of weeks because people are afraid, scared to death that they're going to die of COVID. So they're running to their doctors and they're getting prescriptions for Paxlovid. So I guess whether Pfizer gets you with this worthless shot that they tried to push on everybody or they get you with a dose of Paxlovid, they're making money because Paxlovid, I think, is like 330 bucks a pop for each prescription. I actually had COVID in May of 2022. The worst part about it for me, I remember, was the sore throat. The sore throat was like, it was brutal. And I remember thinking to myself, what I really need, as I was sick, laying in bed, I'm thinking to myself, what I really need is some amoxicillin to kill this sore throat. Because the rest of it was fine. Like, I was a little groggy. I never had any sort of a cough. I never had anything with my lungs. Uh, but I had a bad sore throat, and I was just kind of out of it. I just was tired, and I just slept a lot. But I called one of these telemedicine docs and, you know, they do the whole thing over the video call. This is like really not what you want to do when you're sick. Do like a video call with a doctor you don't know. Uh, but I did this and the woman, I said to her, like, I would just want some some antibiotics for my throat. Like I have a really bad sore throat. Could you just give me some antibiotics for my throat? She wouldn't do that. She prescribes me Paxlovid. And at the time, I mean, literally it had just come out. So just like the shot, just like this mRNA shot that they like, put through Operation Warp Speed, which is one of the biggest mistakes that Trump ever did. I still don't think that 
that shoe has dropped on that. I think if Trump ends up being the nominee and they need uh, ammunition to go after him with, they will use the fact that he put together Operation Warp Speed. And they will then they will actually go out and they will report on the people who have had vaccine injuries in order to destroy Trump with that information. And I, know, I don't know whether Trump is unaware of the fact that his base is not a huge fan of these shots and the fact that uh, they put together Operation Warp Speed and then obviously under the Biden administration, they mandated it. And that was worse than what anything Trump had done. But Trump should not be, certainly shouldn't be gloating over the fact that he put together Operation Warp Speed and pushed this shot through. I know he can't help himself but to gloat, but this is one thing that he should not be gloating about. He should be steering clear of it saying, listen, it was an emergency. We did what we thought was necessary. Hindsight being 2020, we probably should not have done, probably, probably, probably should not have done that. Uh, and we probably should have done more long-term testing with the uh, with the vaccines or with the shots because they're obviously not vaccines. But anyway, so uh, Pfizer's making a boatload of money. So when I called this doctor, I called this doctor to get a... Uh, Antibiotics. She prescribed me Paxlovid, and I was like, "Really? Like, I, I don't want Paxlovid." So I ended up never picking up the prescription. I called another teledoc and got some amoxicillin, and within two days, bang, I was good. I, my sore throat was gone, and and uh, it was all good. We we still haven't. I think we still haven't suffered all of the fallout from this COVID vaccine shot tyranny. Right? We. The, the damage that was done to society as a whole, the damage that was done to our military in terms of booting people out of the, of the military who refused to get this shot, or you had long-term members who just said, I don't want to get this shot and decided to take early retirement, decided to leave the military. The amount of knowledge that the U.S. military lost and just the, the onerous rules that they put into place around who had to get this shot and how it was so forcefully pushed upon the service members. I, the, the damage so far, I, it hasn't been calculated, and I don't know that we're going to know the damage for, for quite some time. It certainly has affected recruiting. I mean, across the board, all of the services are down. They can't get anybody to come in. And I, I don't, for, for the higher brass, if they're confused as to what's going on here, you can't put out YouTube videos of, of cross-dressing people in the Navy and, you know, all of these all these people doing all of this crazy stuff. That's not what attracts a young man or a young woman to go serve in the armed forces. I can tell you when I joined, I was uh, 20 years old when I joined the Marine Corps. And there was a couple of reasons that I did it. One, I wanted to know, could I, could I meet the challenge of everything that you hear about Marine Corps boot camp? Could I do that? So I wanted to know for myself, could I do that? The second thing that I wanted was that, I wanted, I wanted the discipline of it. I was in college at the time and I had no idea what I was doing in college. And I was like, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go do this. It'll give me some time to figure myself out. It'll give me time to serve my country. My dad, I remember as a kid, he was in the army and I remember uh, being in his closet and like looking at his uniforms and being sort of just like in awe of the whole thing. I mean, you have family members that do this sort of thing. I had great uncles who had fought in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. So it had been in my family. There had always been people that were around that were in the army that talked about it fondly, that had good memories. 
Uh, obviously, you know, the guys who served in combat, one of my great uncles was machine gunned across the chest and got run over by a Jeep and somehow survived. So obviously that was not, <laughs> that was not a good memory. Uh, but overall, they all spoke about it like it was a good thing that had happened to them. Uh, so that was one of the reasons I had that sort of spree de corps from, from my family and the fact that you take pride in the fact that you're an American and you want to give back and all of that. But all of that now it seems to be lost. There's, there doesn't seem to be a lot of that out there. And I look at what the military is doing today, and even with my own children, I had thought to myself when, when they were younger that maybe if, if, if they wanted to take some time to, you know, to, to do something other than go from high school directly into college, potentially they could use this as an avenue to do that. I don't even recommend that my own kids go into the military. So I wouldn't recommend it for anybody else's kids. Certainly not the way the military is today. Certainly not with the people that are running the military today. I mean, look at, look at the things that are going on with, with uh, Dr. Rachel Levine. Who's a, I go, who is this person? This is a man dressed up as a woman in a uniform, like what's going on here? How is this supposed to inspire young men and women to want to stand up and take the flag of freedom and, and go forward with it? Like that's supposed to be inspiring to people. It's supposed to be inspiring to people to see guys on TikTok in the Navy doing uh, transformation videos from their uniform into complete drag. That That's supposed to be what? That's advancing esprit de corps. That's advancing pride in the nation like what is that supposed to be doing i have no idea so yeah i wouldn't uh recommend that my kids go into the military it certainly is a way different military than when i served a way different military uh speaking of the military yesterday was 9 11 yeah it was 9 11 22 years ago it's crazy to think it was 22 years ago 22 years ago some evil people decided they were going to kill a lot of good people and that's what they did whether it be in New York City or Pennsylvania, the Pentagon. I remember I was still working on Wall Street at the time, and I actually had almost gone to the World Trade Center that morning. I was commuting in. I was living in Westchester County at the time, which is just north of Manhattan, and I was commuting in, and there was a Borders bookstore in the base of the World Trade Center, and I used to go there all the time. They had great books. And I was working in technology at the time, and it was before everything was online. So if you had a topic or whatever you needed to research for something in your job, you went to Borders or you went to a library. Um, so I had considered going there that morning. I don't remember why I didn't, but well, for whatever reason, I didn't go. So I remember sitting in my office, and there was all this paper outside floating around in the air. And I'm like, what's with all the paper? So I said to one of the guys who worked across from me, I said, what's, is there like a parade? Do I, do I not know what's going on here? Why is there all this paper floating through the air? And at the time I hadn't realized that the North Tower had already been struck by a plane. But I turned on CNBC just to see like, what's going on with all this paper? Is there, they're going to cover this parade or what, what is it? And they were reporting that it had been a, a single engine prop plane that had crashed into the North Tower, the, the, uh, the, the North Tower, the World Trade Center. So they're, you know, they have helicopters in New York City and they're, they're hovering and CNBC is taking live video. And I remember they zoom in on the hole in the side of the building and I'm looking at this hole and I'm like, that is a big hole for a single engine prop plane. That does not look like a prop plane to me. Uh, 
And of course, as, as all of us, right, if you, if you were watching TV that day, as all of us are watching all of the news, uh, all of the news helicopters around, you know, focused on this hole in the side of the World Trade Center, here we see this other aircraft come in and strike the, strike the South Tower. So that explosion was, ne- was next level. I think it was because the North Tower, the, the plane hit the north side of the building, and where I was down on Wall Street, I wasn't exposed to any of that blast. The blast went north. The building essentially blocked uh, the, the, the blast energy from going t- toward where I was. When the second plane hit, it sort of hit on the southeastern side of the building. And that explosion shook the building that I was in. And I look out my window and I see the explosion on the side of the building. And I could feel it like shake my building. And I remember thinking to myself, okay. So right then it went from like, we had a mistake. Somebody made an accident. This was a terrible tragedy that somebody flew a, a personal prop plane or whatever private plane into the North Tower. Now we clearly have a, a passenger airliner that has hit the South Tower on the southeastern corner. Uh, and the entire thing, the entire tenor of the entire situation changed. So there was a confusion at that point. Like, is there going to be another plane? Are they, are they, are they like trying to strike all the tall buildings in Southern Manhattan? And I'm thinking to myself, how tall is the building that I'm in? (laughs) Um, then we hear about the Pentagon and we hear about, you know, what's going on in Pennsylvania and people are saying, you know, wonder we're under attack and you just have sort of confusion. Everybody running around. Nobody knows what the truth is. You're trying to watch TV. They don't know what the truth is on TV. They're trying to, they're trying to piece it together as we go. And then the, the first building falls down. And that was sort of surreal. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think anybody expected the building to collapse the way that it did. So, I'm working with, I'm talking to this guy who has the office across from me and we're like, you know what, we're just going to stay inside because we're looking outside, especially after the first building fell. So there's people running through the streets and there's just dust, just dust. And it was pretty thick dust. I mean, I could still see, still see the people, still see them running through the streets, but there was a lot of dust. When the second building came down, the dust was, I mean, it was off the charts next level. So I was like, I, I don't have any desire to go out there. I don't know how those people are breathing. There were men that were taking off their shirts and just wrapping them around their heads uh, just to prevent themselves from breathing in all of that dust. And it, it, looking out the window, it looked like a dystopian movie. There were people running through the streets uh, with all of this dust, just trying to get away from, from the dust, just, just get away from the entire area. So me and this other guy, we just decided, you know what, we're going to stay put. So I remember the dust then got into the building's ventilation system. And before I had even gone outside, I remember the smell. And that, that's the one thing about this, this event that I won't ever forget was the smell. It was the smell of like concrete and burnt electricity, if that makes any sense. That's like the best way that I can figure to describe it. Uh, it, was the, it was just a horrible smell. Um, and around, I guess we stayed in the building, and I guess around 1.30, we said, you know what, we need to get, make our way to Grand Central Station. Because like I said, I was living in Westchester, this other guy was living in Connecticut, so we both needed to get the Grand Central to get the trains to go home. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, Wall Street, right, is at the southern end of Manhattan, and Grand Central Station's at 42nd Street. Walking-wise, it's probably three and a half or four miles to go from Wall Street to Grand Central, so not, not crazy far, but far enough. Um, so we, we leave the building, we go out and the smell and the dust 
And I can remember looking as we're walking down the street, I can remember looking west toward the World Trade Center and just seeing like a pile of smoldering rubble. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what I would describe it as, a pile of smoldering rubble. And at the time, I don't know that I really, it didn't really click. It, I think I was, maybe I was a little bit of shock. It didn't really click for me like the degree of destruction that had gone on like right there that I was looking at. Um, so on, on our way to, I'm sorry if I'm boring you with this story, turn the podcast off (laughs) on our way to Grand Central. We tried a number of times to, uh, get onto the subway system to get to Grand Central, but the system was totally overwhelmed with riders, totally overwhelmed. They were packed in like crazy. Like you couldn't even walk down the stairs in most of the subway stations. So we just ended up walking the entire way. Uh, once we got to Grand Central, we went our separate ways and I found the Metro North train. Metro North was running on an augmented schedule because of this disaster that had happened. And I found a train that was going where I needed to go. And I get onto this train and it's just, you know, surreal. Just everybody on the train is covered in varying amounts of dust, depending upon how close you were to the building when it came down. Um, just varying amounts. Some people completely covered in dust, other people in light dust, but every one of them just had this look on their face, like complete shock. Just just like processing everything that they had seen. Because you got to remember, like it was a beautiful day in Manhattan. It was a beautiful day. The sky, the sky was crystal clear blue. It was a beautiful day. It was just a little bit of chill in the air because we were coming into the fall, uh, but it was a beautiful day. And I can remember I got home and I turned the TV on and like almost immediately, you know, George Bush was down there the next day. He was president. He was on the the pile of rubble and Giuliani was down there and there was an immediate push to get Wall Street back up and running just to show the world that this terrorist attack is not going to stop us. You're not going to slow us down. There's nothing you can do to shut down the the world's financial center here in Wall Street. Uh, and I know that the attack was on Tuesday and I know that they they wanted to get Wall Street back open on Thursday, but the place was just too much of a mess. So if I remember correctly, either I went back to work on Friday or the following Monday. And when I went downtown, I couldn't take the subway all the way down to Wall Street because it wouldn't go, wouldn't go all the way down. So I had to get off at uh, Fulton Street, which was the stop before. And when I came up out of the subway onto the street, it was totally, it was right out of a Hollywood movie. There was military vehicles everywhere, men with M16s everywhere. Uh, the air was still like really thick with dust and that same concrete just burnt electric smell. Um, and I remember walking from where I used to get off the subway. I would walk to my building. I had to go east. And uh, I remember just all the military vehicles. Um, and that, that was really the jump off point, right, for how we ended up in Afghanistan. Like I, like I said, I'm now I'm reading this book, Cobble, which if you want a book to read that is, going to, that is going to make you angry, that is going to make you realize that Joe Biden does things that no other person would do. And he, the reason that he does them is because every single decision he makes is viewed through a political lens. It has no, it had, he doesn't take into account what's going to happen on the ground. He doesn't take into account what is going to happen to the men and women in uniform that are serving on the ground in these places. He looks at every single one of these events and all the, all the way back, this book talks about all the way back to when he was a senator during the end of Vietnam. 
And he did exactly the same thing. It was, what are the political optics here and what is it going to do to hurt me or help me? And this whole Afghanistan debacle and pulling out of Afghanistan was his idea. He completely ignored all his military advisors and he thought it was going to help him politically here at home to get out. So, I mean, we ended up in Afghanistan because of 9-11. And the stated intent at the time was that we didn't want to give the terrorists a place to train and plan their attacks. And we stayed, I think about this all the time, we stayed there for over 20 years, right? And then one night, we just up and left. I know, people will say, oh, it was planned. And then they really had a plan of what they were going to do and how they were going to get out. It was a disaster. It was a disaster. It was the only time in American history where an American president abandoned American citizens behind enemy lines. They're still there. There are still operators, special forces operators, who have put together private groups to do the things that the American federal government will not do to save their own citizens in Afghanistan. That is still going on today. So I think about this all the time, that we stayed there for 20 years and I think of all of the men and women who served over there, right? Some of them giving up body parts, some of them giving up everything and coming home in flagged drape coffins. And for what? So Joe Biden could just up and leave. And I'm not saying that we should stay there forever. Absolutely not. I totally agree that we do far too much in foreign policy and as it relates to war. This whole thing with Ukraine is a disaster. We need to get the hell out of it. But we were in Afghanistan for 20 years. We had built up Bagram Air Base into this huge facility. We had spent a ton of money there. Strategically, it's an absolutely awesome spot to be able to watch our enemies, to watch China, to watch North Korea, to watch Afghanistan, to watch everything that we need to watch that's over there. And we just gave it all away. And not only did, not only did we give it away, we gave it away with billions and billions of dollars of American military equipment, American weapons, American ammunition, we just gave it away. It is a complete and utter disgrace. Complete and utter disgrace. So much, I think, of what this administration does is just to stick a thumb, just to stick a thumb in the eye of the American people. And that's one of the main reasons I've always believed that Obama is running this White House. He, Obama, harbors such animus toward the United States. The, dis, the, the distaste that you get for the way that he feels about the United States, I think, comes through well in his books. He is disgusted with the American people. He, he thinks that the American people have no idea how bad some places on earth are. And one of the reasons they are that bad is because we have gone and pillaged and taken all of their resources and done bad things to all of these, to all of these countries. And that we here in the United States, we live in a bubble this sheltered life that we live in in the United States. And that he, he felt as though, you know, the American people don't understand the suffering that goes on around the world and all of these other countries on a daily basis. So what's he going to do? He's going to fundamentally transform the United States of America and bring that suffering here. And how's he doing that? He's doing it by dividing people by race, dividing people by gender ideology, dividing people by all of these identity, politi uh, identity politics um, identities that he gives to people, turning them against one another. Now we have crime out of control in the cities. Can't, can't control the crime because that would be racist to arrest people. So we have crime, we have chaos. He's doing the same thing at the border. 
Anybody and anybody who wants to come in can come in. We have no idea who's coming across the southern border, and it's by design. There's nobody that can make a case that's going to tell me that we are not allowing terrorists to come across that border. And it's just a matter of time before we have another event here at home. Just a matter of time. And then all the finger pointing, right? All the finger pointing. Oh, it's not my fault. Not my fault. I didn't do it. We also left Afghanistan wide open. I mean, the stated reason we went there was so that we, had, we, we could lock down and say that the terrorists cannot plan their attacks from here. And we just walked away. Yeah, just walked away. No reason to have it. We keep hearing from the Biden administration that we have these over-the-horizon capabilities. Right, right. Yeah, we'll see what that means. We'll see what that means. Strategically, like I said, Bagram was a huge asset for the United States to keep our eyes on our adversaries, but we just gave it away with all the equipment. To say that Joe Biden is a terrible president does not go far enough. He is actively working against the interest of the United States. He's actively working against the interests of the U.S. He's a real Manchurian candidate. He truly is. And the media cover for him every single day. And I always wonder to myself, do these media people feel like if things go really south, do they feel like it's not going to affect them? Because how could they feel that way? And we had Biden overseas just this week. How about we listen to Biden overseas just this week? The guy cannot put together a sentence. And this is the man representing the United States on the world stage. We are in peril, folks. If you are our enemy, when is the time to strike? When this guy's in power? And uh, I see, I'm just following my orders here. They cut his mic Uh, off here, listen. Hear it? It's really quiet. They cut off his mic. Staff, is there anybody haven't spoken? To, uh, I ain't calling on you. I'm calling. I said they have five questions. Uh, I don't. Uh, anyway, I, I just think that there are other things on leaders' minds, and they respond to what's needed at the time. And look, n- nobody likes hey, folks having celebrated international meetings if you don't know what you want at the meeting. Why is he out of breath? If you don't have a game plan. He may have a game plan. He just hasn't shared it with me. But I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I'm going to go to bed. Excuse me, third world. I'm going to go to bed. This is the leader of the United States standing on the world stage talking about how he's going to go to bed. Things continued to go off the rails so much that the staff said to the press, this event is over. Listen to this. The, uh, the, the, uh, the Southern Hemisphere had access to change. It had access. We, it wasn't confrontational at all. You came thank, thank you, everybody. This ends thank, the count press thank, conference. Thanks, everyone. Thank they, they, have to sh- they have to shut down the press conference because they can't let the leader of the United States speak. They can't let him speak because he's embarrassing himself. He's embarrassing the country. He's making it exceptionally hard for the media to cover for him. And this is the man who was supposed to be in charge when we have countries on the march, when we have China on the march, when we have China making eyes at Taiwan, when we have North Korea and Kim Jong-un taking a train to go meet with Putin, We are pushing 
our enemies of the world together at a time when this person is supposed to be the president. The hero of the stupid. Hero of the stupid. And I know we, I laugh about it all the time. Things like this. I got a lot of, I got hairy legs that turn, that, 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 that turn uh, um, blonde in the sun. But at the end of the day, it puts all of us who live here in the United States in much greater peril because he is incompetent. He is not up to this job. He does not have the ability to do this job. And the people surrounding him are, they are, they are naive ideologues who have no idea what evil in the world looks like. And read the book, Cobble. Or get the audiobook and listen to it. And listen to the nonsense that these people were focused on when the, the government in Afghanistan was collapsing around them. Collapsing around them. And they're focused on everything but what they should be focused on. And that's going to do it for me, folks. Tuesday, September 12, 2023. Thanks for being here with me on the world-famous Ritz Report. Please send me notes of adoration and love or pure hatred to Ritz at Ritz Report and leave me a five-star review if you like what you hear. <laughs> uh, thanks for being here. Uh, I think I'm going to do Ritz in a hurry for the next three days. So Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of this week will be Ritz in a hurry, the shorter podcasts. Because I have to do some moving on Thursday, and I don't know if I'm going to have time to do a full show. But I will be back next week. I hope you guys have a great week. Please be sure to catch Ritz in a hurry, and I will see you next time. Ritz out. Ritz out.